Welcome to the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. This podcast aims to explore issues and challenges as well as ideas and solutions leading to strengthening support for mental wellness and recovery. My name is Alexa Bull, Knowledge Exchange Manager at Step Care Solutions, and I will be your host for this episode. In today's episode, we will discuss navigating options for supporting mental wellness, balancing choices and preference with information overload as we look for resources that will support our ongoing wellness journey. We will also explore things to consider when choosing apps and e-mental health resources and making informed choices about what might be helpful and how apps and e-mental health tools can provide opportunities for connection and community. Mental health and wellness, along with things like self-care, have become commonplace topics on social media, the news, and other online sources. We talk more openly about self-care and wellness at work, at school, and in our families. All great things to reducing stigma around mental health problems and making sure people who need it can get help. It does, however, present some challenges in effectively navigating mental health and addiction systems. There's so many apps, sites, and tools available to us both online and in our communities as well. Some come at a cost, some are free. How do we know which ones are reliable and which ones are effective? According to an evaluation of mental health application published in May of 2021 by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in the United States, there are growing concerns over data sharing and clinical safety. A study on assessment of the data sharing and privacy practices of smartphone apps for depression and smoking cessation published in April 2019 on JAMA Network Open found that out of 36 top-ranked apps for smoking cessation and depression, 29 sent data to Facebook or Google, but only 12 apps mentioned this in their privacy policy. Another study of 61 mental health apps, which was published in May of 2019, in the International Journal of Law and Psychiatry, found that 41% of the apps did not have a privacy policy at all. This raises concerns about using apps and protecting our privacy and confidentiality. As well, in addition to an increase in online resources and supports, we are increasingly becoming aware that there are a number of informal ways to support our mental health, which can include things like meditation, prayer, yoga, exercise, nature, among many others. Knowing what might be most helpful and effective in each unique situation could seem like an overwhelming task. I am joined today by Dr. Anne-Marie Churchill, who has over 25 years experience in direct clinical practice in community, hospital, research, and post-secondary mental health systems. Anne-Marie is the executive director of Step Care Solutions and has worked as the lead clinical trainer and consultant on Step Care 2.0 demonstration project in Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as Step Care 2.0 implementations in Northwest Territories, Nova Scotia, and post-secondary institutions across North America. In addition to this role, Anne-Marie is a clinical consultant on the Canadian Institute of Health Research Grant to implement and evaluate the digitization of StepCare, a research fellow in the StepCare 2.0 project at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and is leading StepCare Solutions in their role as representative partner on the Government of Canada's mental health response to COVID through the Wellness Together Canada portal. Henry is also co-author of the book Person-Centered Diagnosis and Treatment in Mental Health. 
Let's welcome Dr. Anne-Marie Churchill to the So Why podcast today. So welcome, Anne-Marie, to the So Why podcast. We're so excited to have you on today and looking forward to chatting. Hi, Alexa. Great to be here. So I guess we'll get right into the questions. In the Step Care 2.0 model, choice and preference are key. In your experience with working with the model, how can enough diverse choices be available without people experiencing information overload? Yeah, it's a great question because sometimes that's what we do. We give people a lot of information and then we say, what would you like to do? And even as a clinician, many people would say to me, I have no idea. Like, that's why I'm here, because I don't know. And sometimes we'll stop there and then we'll prescribe or we'll direct. Based on the Step Care 2.0 principles, that's sort of a, a pitfall in that we're assuming we know what will fit for this person. So it's almost like we have a choice. Either we give them lots of options and choices Or what we do is we narrow and prescribe. And I think there's something in between. There's a step we often miss, and we've been talking a lot about it on our team, is informed choice. So what we can do is say we have a number of options that are available. What kinds of things have you found to be really useful to you? So that's one question we can start with. And I find that's helpful because... Some people will say right away, oh, I really like to talk or I really like to read things or I'm not one. I just don't believe in this counseling thing or I really don't like technology. People are talking about e-mental health and I'm not interested. So right away, based on what the person is telling me, I can start to narrow. Or another thing that we can do, and we've been testing this out on the Wellness Together Canada portal with navigators. So one approach, of course, is to say, well, what do you like to do or what's been helpful to you in the past. But again, some people might go, I don't know, or might be so stressed that it's hard for them to focus. So in that case, we can still come from this client-centric position where we're not prescribing, we're still searching for what would be useful, but we're bucketing what we have. So I can say, well, do you like to do technology? Do you like to read? Are you someone who who kind of feels better and gets things clear in your head better by talking to someone? And then from that, I can say, well, if you like to talk to someone, we have counselors, we have peer supporters, we have coaches. So what I'm doing is bucketing for them. But the most important thing around choice and preference is Step Care 2.0 is supporting, helping, um, prioritizing a person's choice, strengths, likes things that are a natural fit for them. Because when we're having challenges with our mental health, trying to learn something new or to fit into something that's not a fit adds more stress and burden. So it's much easier if it's something that's a natural fit. So there's many ways that we can support choice and preference without overloading. And sometimes we got to feel that out. What's the best approach? I think that's really interesting, the whole concept of asking people what has worked for them in the past, what types of things do they prefer. And I think it's really important, you know, when people are making choices that they do feel like they are able to make choices that suit them. So when people are are looking all of the different supports available, all of the different resources out there. What are some ways that folks can recognize mental health supports that can be effective and helpful in their lives? So I think there's a there's a few things around that. 
when they're looking at everything that's out there, it's important that they don't feel they have to sort of hit the bullseye. So there's one thing out there that's going to be the silver bullet, or there's one thing out there that's going to work for me. I think that kind of mindset has added burden and stress, but it's also, I think, decreased hope because often what happens is the first thing we try doesn't work or it doesn't work as effectively or as quickly as we would like. And then people think this is useless. Like there's nothing there for me. I'm a lost cause or the system is a lost cause. And so what we've been trying to do at Step Care 2.0 is what we call for ourselves, a fail forward approach, but also an experimentation approach where try some things, you know, your best shot and see what works. And some professionals even have said to us, isn't that a bit risky? Like, what about someone tries something and it's not accredited or it's not helpful or maybe even it's a, it's inappropriate? And I think we go back to this strength-based recovery approach where trust people to be able to say this isn't for me or even empower them to do that. Like, I like to say to people, there's lots out there. Try it. If it doesn't work or doesn't feel right to you, just ignore it and move on to something else. So if people are going to do that self-guided approach and look out there and look for things for themselves, if they're looking for counselors or they're looking for psychologists, you know, all regions have lists of licensed social workers and psychologists. So they can always check those lists if they want to find a counselor. If they go to a site, something like Wellness Together Canada, or their provincial or territorial sites or their national sites that are accredited by their government or their public health systems, then that's a good place because those resources have been vetted. So that's always good to check out those kinds of resources or going to different clinics, their primary care providers, or even people in their community. You know, I really think there's so many resources in our community, like our Canadian mental health associations. And then there's organizations like that in other countries where it's people with lived experience where you can get advice and you can get some links that, that are trustworthy. But I always add the caveat that sometimes it might just not work or might not be a good resource. And so keep what's good, disregard the rest. I think that's always a good way to think about it. When we're going out there, I agree that it can be so scary. We don't want to make the wrong choices. We're, we're always afraid of doing the wrong thing. But I love the idea of being able to fail forward, being able to know that, you know what, I can try something. It's okay if it doesn't work. It's okay if I go and try something else. And you brought up a few interesting points around, you know, trying to find really valid resources out there that maybe have been vetted by other people. What are some ways that we can make sure that we're accessing online resources that are trusted? How can we recognize which ones might be trusted and valid versus, you know, maybe something that that's not really validated or, you know, maybe mainstream or that type of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. And we're still working on, you'll notice there are a number of organizations working on standards for apps and for e-technologies. We have been inundated, especially during the COVID period, with virtual care apps and wellness apps. And, you know, it reminds me sort of the whole wellness industry. There's things we can regulate and things we can't. And certainly, you know, if it's things that can cause harm, they tend to be more regulated than things that are, 
you know, pretty innocuous wellness things. So you can think about this while you're exercising, or this is a really good way to fall asleep to these songs or these tunes. So it's something that you really have a lot of control over and you can just turn off. There's lots of those out there. And I think that's something people can just try. If it's things like personal, confidential, if these apps that you're signing on for programs ask you for personal and confidential information. I think that's a step up. We have a, an approach on Wellness Together Canada called a progressive sign-on. So you can do some things for nothing. You don't have to give any information. You don't have to invest any money. You don't have to invest any commitment to anything. You can even turn off the cookies. So there's no tracking. There's no sharing of personal information. And you can try out some things and see, does this feel... Does this feel appropriate? So when you're looking at programming, check for that. See if there's anything that you have to give or provide, whether it's around your security, your information, financially, personal information, that sort of thing is is really important. I think when I look at programming that's online in particular, I think a lot about the privacy and security piece and I think about control. So do you have control? over an account if you make one? Can you delete your account at any time? What are the privacy statements? And some of them are so long and so convoluted that I think people either just sign or they go away. And I think more and more, if it's a trustworthy validated app, one of the privacy and security regulations that they have to go through is plain language on privacy policy. And so it should be a privacy policy that's accessible. And so a lot of the apps that we promote are very clear on how they share data, whether they share data with third parties. It has to be easy to read and has to be accessible. People have to be in control of their data. There are privacy and security regulations that that governments have to follow. And so if you have an app that's provided by your local government or your local health authority, then that's been vetted. So that's another thing you can do. But if you just want to try some things out, that someone's told you about and they're not coming recommended by some regulatory body or health professional, then my best advice is I wouldn't give upfront information. I would check privacy policy and I'd see if you can try it out first without giving anything. And then if you do sign up and you are going to use that app, that you can delete your account anytime you want. So these are things that you can check on. I would go right to the privacy policy. If you can't understand the privacy policy, I would probably say it's not a program that you want to engage with because you should be able to have plain, plain language and full informed consent before you sign on. Those are really fantastic tips. I think they're really helpful because there's just so much out there. As you mentioned, there's just so many options. Different people are telling you about different things. So I think those are really great straightforward tips for folks to use when looking for something that's out there that might be reliable and trying to screen through all of the information coming at them. I'm wondering when looking at apps and e-mental health tools, when people are feeling in distress, how can these apps and e-mental health tools be used effectively to maintain good health? So I love the idea of virtual e-mental health apps because they're at your fingertips. So when you're in distress, sometimes it's hard to get out of your own head. And there's two things. One that that's related to that and why I think apps are so great and, and just this innovation has been wonderful, I think, for mental health and wellness 
is that previous, if you were distressed, it's like, oh, I have to call an emergency line. And then it's supposed to be a crisis. And a lot of people are afraid to say it's a crisis. So often they won't reach out and they suffer in silence and personally alone, isolated. Or they have to sign up for counseling when that's probably not what they want or have to talk to a counselor and it's not available. So again, people are distressed, they're isolated. And maybe when the distress diminishes, they go, oh, I don't really need it. So it's almost like there's been no gain. And this pain may reoccur, may even get worse, this distress, and turn into something where they will need longer term care or more intense programming. What apps, especially really effective ones that are based on evidence about helps reduce stress or manage emotional regulation or provide different perspectives that give us relief, like use a cognitive behavioral approach or mindfulness or acceptance and commitment approach. These are all known therapies that work and a number of apps are built on those. But the what they're delivering are some elements of these theories that are shown to be what we call them are active ingredients. They're really effective. So for instance, relaxation breathing is so important when you're distressed because you're turning down your physiological arousal, you're calming yourself down. Sometimes that's hard to do by yourself, but if you have an app that talks you through and it's a calming voice, or it just it's a way to measure your breathing and slow it down. And some people respond to waves, some people respond to rain, but we know that's such an effective strategy and it could be right on your phone. I know lots of people who are doing that. They'll say, you know, when my anxiety goes up, I just turn that on, plug it in my ear and it just slows me down and calms me down. That can prevent an anxiety attack. It's also a really important skill you're learning through the app to be able to regulate your own physiological arousal, which drives the threat response and our anxiety response. So that's just one example, but there's others like chat rooms. So sometimes when you're, you know, virtually, you may be in a community where you would tell nobody about what's going on with you, but you can go online and and join a peer support chat room. And a lot of these are regulated now. We have some on the Wellness Together Canada portal, like Together All, that are facilitated by a mental health professional. But you can go on and you can chat and say, has anyone else ever felt this? And that common humanity creates a self-compassion that creates a connection to other people that also builds resilience, strength, calm connection, which we know can offset some of the stress and burden of mental distress. So these apps, these virtual communities, when used appropriately, even if you have are in therapy or with a counselor, you can be using that in between. We know a lot of progress is made in between sessions. What a great way to support your well-being, whether you have really serious mental health problems or you want to prevent mental health problems. So apps cover the spectrum. They can be used by anybody at any time, both to promote mental health, but also to ease mental illness and mental distress. So to me, they're a great addition to our toolkit. And both to our toolkit for mental health and wellness, but also for resilience building. So I love that we can add them on. They're probably not the, as I mentioned before, a silver bullet for everybody. It's a, you know, fix all. It's going to work for everything. But a very important, I think, addition that creates access, reduces stigma, breaks down barriers, and makes it available to anyone really who has technology, which is another issue, of course, around accessibility. But it, it can help a lot of people and fill a lot of gaps. Great. I like the statement that you said right at the end there, that fill a lot of gaps. 
Because I think a lot of the things that you mentioned around, you know, creating safety, you know, reducing some of the barriers to reaching out, getting really quick access to resources and support and tools for between sessions, if you are in therapy, I think it, it does fill a number of gaps. So I think that's really exciting. Some good insights to apps and how they can be used to help in times of distress. So further to that, I'm wondering how can online tools or programs increase our ability to support others and contribute meaningfully as a part of a helping and compassionate community? So I love the idea. And I, that's such a great question, Alexa, of how they can be used for us to support others. And more and more, we're realizing that when we help others, we help ourselves and we create capacity in our communities, but also capacity in ourselves to learn about ourselves while we're supporting others and that we have purpose and meaning to our lives. So often we feel when, especially with mental distress and mental health concerns, we become very insular. We go internal. We worry a lot about what we're thinking and what we're feeling and about just our own wellness to the point where often that develops into rumination and an increased self-focus where we feel like there's something wrong with us. Again, this isolation, we're the only one in the world with this. And so when we actually can reach out to others and support others, there's that common humanity again. So there's the sense of I'm not alone in this, but also listening to other people's concerns, distresses, We realize we have a lot in common, but that we can also support through our own experience, that what we have been through is so valuable. And when we're distressed, we're learning something about ourselves that we can also share for others. So our distress can be valuable. Our stress can be a connector. Our distress can be a learning opportunity for ourselves, but also to share with others. And so I think this idea of connectedness and apps, more and more we're learning of ways to create peer support communities through apps. And I think that that's really important because stigma, again, is a big piece. Often people are afraid to reach out because they'll be judged or they're just afraid of that whole counseling approach. And so peer support or supporting others is a way for people to be able to talk about what's going on with them, talk or chat. And apps provide that. And so You don't necessarily have to have a peer support group in your community. And in the work we do at Step Care, we do know a lot of communities that haven't quite developed the peer support capacity to meet the needs of everybody. So with apps, we can have general peer support. We can have tailored peer support. So we see a lot of people going to our peer support for substance use concerns. Some people go for their own substance use concerns to support other people, to tell them their story. Or we have some family members going who support other family members who are struggling with someone's substance use um, concern. We have peer support for healthcare workers. We're looking at peer support for veterans, for police officers, for teachers, or people in certain regions. You know, the things that I struggle with in a rural area of Canada may be different than what somebody struggles with, say, in downtown Toronto. And so what ends up happening is that people, it builds connections between people. And this can really only be done, I think, It can be done in communities, but apps just make it so much easier to be able to develop these communities and give people the opportunity to help others. It's not always easy to do that. Like, do I have to go now and sign up and get training to volunteer? Well, not anymore. You can join an app just to provide a listening ear, or you can join a live group just to talk about your experiences to support somebody else. So the ability for us now 
to connect with others, to give support, but also to even get training on how to give support. So we've talked about maybe training modules on helping conversations, how to be a a good listener, how to help in, in a way that is appropriate for someone. So there's even training online for that now that can really support you to be an effective helper, maybe in your family, maybe in your workplace or in your community. So rather than having to go join up and go somewhere, you can do courses online at your own time that help you become a better listener and a better helper. And so build capacity in individuals to help others and in communities to take care of each other and take care of their communities. So again, driving this through through technology is amazing to me. And just being able to get help, but also to give help and give helpful help is just a wonderful opportunity. That's a really interesting concept around using some of these online tools and resources to open up this community, you know, being able to share with others and how community can really foster our wellness and being able to help others. I I find it also interesting that you brought up training as well, because, you know, accessing that training to be a good helper, you know, the online environment and tools that we now have access to can actually increase our ability to help others both online and in person which is is kind of a neat concept. I'm wondering, we've explored online resources, access to online resources, knowing good ones from bad ones, privacy concerns. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you feel is important to highlight as a part of this conversation and a part of StepCare 2.0 and utilizing all of these different resources that are now at our fingertips. I think, Alexa, maybe going back to where you started about choice and preference. And so that's what I think about. I think what all of these apps and tools have done is opened up the system. And we've always known that there are many people who could use information, support, ways for coping, all kinds of different interventions who've never reached out. And I believe they haven't reached out for help because it didn't feel like a fit. It didn't feel comfortable. And so instead of us broadening our ways of providing help, we've almost been trying to get people ready to come for the help that's not a fit for them. And I think what all of these apps have done is just open that up. It's opened up our thinking around what help is, but it's also opened up our interventions. Well, before there was a lot of, well, we can't do that. It's all about counseling and therapy. And what the apps have shown us is that this is really, really an important approach for a large segment of the population. In polling, we've heard many people say, there was one poll in particular of healthcare workers, 50% said they wouldn't reach out for help. That's really scary. This is a very stressed group. And when asked why not, they said, I'd like to self-direct on that. I'd like to do things for myself first. If we never provide that, then I don't think if people need the next step or need more intensive, they won't get there. And that's what's been happening. So the apps, the tools provide the choice and preference, but they also challenge us to think more broadly about what mental health support and resources really look like, which also means becoming more culturally responsive. It means become more inclusive, seeing different ways that we can help, other ways of knowing in the quest for solutions. So we've been stuck a long time in mental health. And I think what we're doing now is looking at, oh, there's more ways we can think about this. And what I think will happen is more people will feel that this is accessible to them, both convenient, now I can get it, but also accessible in a way that it it fits for them. 
it resonates with them and they can scan and find out and try things out without committing too much, but also just learn a lot. Because as you're trying these things, you're building your self-awareness about what is a fit for you, what does make you feel better. And that's really the keys to doing well and resilience. It's about knowing yourself, being self-aware, even these apps that allow you now to track your mental wellness. So you can keep track of it to say, gee, I haven't been doing well lately. And then then that can prompt you to go try some things, maybe online or reach out to a counselor. So I just, I really do want to stress that not one of these is the answer, but the more that we open our minds, we experiment, we try out other options, we get lots of feedback, we monitor whether these things are helpful or not, and then adapt if they're not, then we're actually improving the system, which in inevitably will improve well-being and well-being for populations of people. Thank you so much for that. I found this conversation incredibly interesting. I find it's such an exciting time that we live in. We're really, it's opening up so many different opportunities and possibilities around supporting our mental health in maybe some different ways that we had not really tapped into as much previously. So I really appreciate your time and just the time you took to really go through some different tips and just explore this whole new world that's opening up to us and providing us access to a new way of doing mental health. Thanks, Alexa. Actually, it's a real pleasure because I think the conversation got to continue. I think we're not there, but as you said, it's so hopeful. I think we're really at that cusp where we get to transform the mental health and addiction services, the systems that deliver these services. So I think it's a really exciting time. And I think the change will be made if we keep talking and keep connecting with people and collaborating for solutions. So it's a, I agree, it's an exciting time. And I just really appreciated the conversation. Amazing. Well, thanks once again for joining us today on the So Why podcast. And I hope that we'll have you on again in the future to come back and revisit how these things have evolved. Would love to. Thanks so much. Thank you once again for joining us on the So Why podcast with Step Care Solutions. For more information on the Step Care 2.0 model, the Wellness Together Canada portal, as well as links to resources mentioned in this episode, please check out the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in once again. We look forward to having you back next time.